All right, everybody, how are you? How many of you want to get married? Yeah? What's the matter with you guys? <laughs> Don't you want to get married? Come on. I'll try that again. That was pretty lame. That three-fourths of you were awesome, but there's like, how, how many of you want to get married? All right, fair enough. I've got great news for you tonight. But before we get to that, I want to recognize the people who are the heroes of this camp without whose sacrifice this camp never could have happened. They are the heroes of the camp without a doubt. They are my heroes. They are the people I look up to and respect enormously. Many of them gave up a week of work to be here. Many of them gave up a week of vacation to be here. They were in the cabin with you every night. They were out at the rec field. They're in chapel right now at every meal. They're going to go home with you and will continue to love you. So I want to recognize all the counselors. Could you stand, please, counselors? And the rest of you, run on over and give your counselor a hug. I love it. I absolutely love it when I lose complete control of the camp. I love it. That was awesome. And you are deserving of it all. All right. Can you handle one more? One more painting? Can you handle one more? All right. We're going to be in John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Oh, I can't wait to get into this. I just can't wait. Are you ready? John 14, I want to read the first three verses. Let me set the stage, all right, because this is a celebration. Even though when I tell you the setting of it, it may not sound like it, but it is a celebration. This was the last night of Jesus' life. He knew that he was about at this point, this is Thursday night, he knew that he was probably at the beginning of John 14, maybe two to three hours away from being put into that olive press in the garden. Sorry, go ahead. And then he knew that it would be the next morning when he would be nailed to a cross. He knew that the disciples had no idea what was coming. They had no idea what was about to hit them. He knew that. And he needed to encourage them. Now, I want you to put yourself in Jesus' well-worn sandals, dirty feet and all. God bless you, Gesundheit. And if you wanted to encourage your disciples, of which there were 12, now there are only 11. Do you know why? Judas has left the room. What would you say to them? What is the most encouraging thing that you could say to them. I am confident that if Jesse and the band were in that upper room eating a Passover Seder with Jesus and the disciples, Jesus wouldn't have had to say a thing. He would have just had Jesse sing that last song. 
Yeah, glorious day. Because that is what we're talking about. But Jesse wasn't there, nor was the band. So this is what Jesus said in honor of God's word. If you would stand with me, please. And this is what it says. Jesus to his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. That's all right. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may be where I am. Obviously, that meant a whole lot more to the disciples than it means to you. Ah, but wait, the night is not done. Let's pray and we'll get into it. Thank you, Father, for bringing us together tonight. We ask your richest blessing upon our time together. Thank you for each of these students. So special, so precious to me, and so much more precious to you. I thank you for each one in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. You, you are getting married. And so am I. What a week we have had. If we can think back to Sunday night, let me just run through the takeaways one last time, may I? Sunday night we were together just a few short hours ago, really. I mean, we're only talking four days, right? About 96 hours ago when we first broke the seal on the week and we met that night a prostitute crawling up behind Jesus wanting to pour perfume all over him and wash his feet with her tears, and the takeaway that night was this. The Bible is God's written record of, you know it by heart, real people who lived in real places, who had real experiences, all of which point to a real God. Please don't ever forget that. The next morning, you heard a little part of my story, just one little chapter out of a much bigger story, and we learned from that that Jesus is gentle. Don't ever ever forget that. Jesus is gentle. Monday night, we met a new friend. His name is Levi. We now call him Matthew. And we learned from that that no one, no one is too far gone. Do you remember that? Don't ever forget it. Then on Tuesday, we went to a Jewish funeral. You met Mary and Martha there. Lazarus, their brother, had died. We were in the lovely little town of Bethany, the house where God turns our sorrows into sweetness. And there we learned that Jesus said, I will be with you always, always. Don't ever, ever forget it. And then that night, Jesus went into the olive press because he was crushed by the weight of our sins. You remember that? Then the next morning, I took you into the desert. Jesus did hand-to-hand -hand combat with the devil. We introduced you to him. And we told you that you can reduce the entire Bible to one simple sentence. Please don't ever forget it. The sentence is, whatever you're doing that's right, Keep doing it. Whatever you're doing that's wrong, knock it off. Last night, we had a takeaway. Dewey gets the night off. This morning, we gave you an overview of the Bible. Do you remember that? 
an overview of the Bible, and we told you that the Bible is God's picture book. Tonight, the takeaway is you're getting married, and so am I. The takeaway tomorrow night, I have to tell you now because we won't be together tomorrow night. The takeaway tomorrow night is I'll be playing with my grandkids. I can't wait. All right, let's talk about weddings, all right? I love weddings. The last wedding I did was two and a half weeks ago. I got to marry my niece. I married my niece to her fiance, who is now her husband. And it was a glorious time. It was in Carson City, Nevada. They invited me to participate in the ceremony and to conduct it, and I was thrilled to do so. It was a wonderful, wonderful wedding. I love weddings because they are so much fun. They are so filled with joy. You look into the eyes of the bride. You look into the eyes of the groom. They share their vows with one another, that tender kiss at the end of the ceremony. Everybody hoops and hollers. And the whole ceremony start to finish. Their request, I said, from the time the bride walks in and we all stand up to here comes the bride to the time the bride and groom walk out, how long do you want it? They said 20 minutes. It was a 20-minute ceremony, after which we had a reception. And the way the typical reception goes is you eat a slice of cake, maybe a couple of cashew nuts, and if you're lucky, an after-dinner mint. And then everybody greets everybody, and they go home. Let me take you now to a Jewish wedding, may I? Oh, let me tell you something. They know how to party. The thing about our Jewish friends is this. We are, don't be offended at this, I'm including myself. Personal pronoun, first person, we, includes me. We in America are emotionally retarded. May I say that? We are emotionally retarded. If we get too excited, we give you drugs to calm you down. If you get too far down, we give you drugs to lift you up. We have this whole range of human emotions, and in America, for whatever reason, yea, verily, in the West, in the West, this would include Europe, in the West, we take the whole range of human emotions, all of which God created, all of which are legitimate, and we whack off the ends of that spectrum, both ends, the excited end and the depressed end, and we say, this is what is normal. Okay, And if you get outside of these boundaries of what is normal, we will medicate you. All right. If that's not bad enough, then a number of Americans start attending church. And once you get into church, we tell you in church, if this is what's normal outside of the church, this is what is normal inside the church. You don't want to get too wild because we don't want to be some of those holy roller charismatics. And we don't want to get too... We don't want to get too rigid because we don't want to be those legalistic evangelicals. So you got to be right here in the middle, and anything outside of that is inappropriate. And so what happens is we end up emotionally constipated. We have all of these feelings inside of us that we cannot get out. That is not the problem in the Middle East. In the Middle East, you are free to experience and express the whole range of emotions. If I took you, really took you, to a Jewish funeral, you would hear weeping, the kind of weeping you have never heard before. David in the Psalms talks about weeping in his bedroom. <clears throat> and he wept so much that he saturated his pillow with his tears. 
Now, if we did that, we'd say you're clinically depressed and put you on drugs. He could take his pillow and wring out the tears. On the place on the Mount of Olives, that mountain of olive trees where Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem, there is a wonderful little church. It's a beautiful church. It was probably built by a relative of mine. I don't know that, but a guy named Barlucci. And this church is in the shape of a teardrop because it's where Jesus wept over Jerusalem. You can see the whole city from this. I'd love to take you there. And on the corners of the church, the four corners of the church, are tear jars. I told you about them earlier in the week, a narrow little jar with a funnel. You can hold it under your chin and the tears drip off and you can store them. And what people do in a Jewish funeral is after they have cried and they have put their tears in a jar, they put a cork in it so the tears don't evaporate, and they will mount that in their homes in a prominent place, like on a mantle somewhere, because it is a symbol of the abiding love that they have for their dearly departed, the level of their tears. See, everything in the Middle East is a picture. But on the other side of that emotional spectrum, a wedding. It is a party, and I am talking about a party. Forget the piece of cake, two cashew nuts, and a mint. The reception goes for a week, for a week. It went so long at the beginning of Jesus' ministry that they ran out of wine. Do you remember that? It's in John chapter 2. They ran out of wine, and Jesus turned water into wine. Isn't it amazing that the first miracle Jesus ever did was at a wedding? He loves weddings. And in a sense, weddings were the bookends of his ministry. The first miracle he did was at a wedding, and now the last night of his life, he talked to his disciples about a wedding. The wedding itself is so much fun. It's all a picture. There is what they call, I mentioned it earlier in the week, a hoopah. You remember me saying something about a hoopah? A hoopah. A hoopah is a portable tent-like thing. It's got four poles, and there are four people that man the poles, and they hold this thing, and the bride and the groom stand under the hoopah. It is a picture. It is a symbol, a symbol of God. God is over the couple, okay? Now, let me ask you a Bible trivia question. Let's see if you can get this right. Remember the excuse me, the six days of creation. What is the last thing God created? You think about that while I lubricate my vocal cords. What is the last thing God created? What was it? Woman. Close but no cigar. The last thing God created was a family. He married the man to the woman. And so, in celebration of that, you see, what our Jewish friends do every time they celebrate anything is they are reenacting something. I mentioned the Passover the other night. I won't get into any detail now. It's a separate subject. But every year when they meet together to have a Passover meal together, it fits tonight's talk because that's where Jesus and the disciples were, they are reenacting the exodus, the escape from Egypt through the Red Sea. Do you remember that? They reenact it when they do the Passover. 
at a wedding, they are recreating the seventh day, the sixth day, excuse me, seventh day was the Sabbath when God rested. They are recreating the sixth day. And we are witnessing at a Jewish wedding, God creating a family. Two people, man and woman, coming together to become one family. It is a glorious, glorious thing. The last one I participated in was a renewal of vows. Two couples, and they wanted to renew their marriage vows. They were already married. And they asked me if I would officiate it. I was thrilled to do it, and we did it on the deck of a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. It was magical. It was nighttime. It was dark all around the sea. You could see a city set on a hill, the same one Jesus referred to, glistening on the horizon. There were soft, gentle ripples that were gently rocking the boat. The hoopah was set up. The couple met together. I was standing there in the middle as their rabbi. I had my little kippah on my head, which is a symbol of me doing what I'm doing under the authority of God, in a sense, standing in his place. We exchanged the vows. The only difference now verses in Jesus' day is they add one little thing to the ceremony. And that is, after the husband and wife exchange their vows and I proclaim them husband and wife, I don't know if you've ever seen this in a movie or something, the man, the groom, will smash a glass. Have you ever seen that? You've seen that, yeah? Watch Fiddler on the Roof sometime. Smash a glass. Do you know why they do that? They do that today, not in Jesus' day. They do it today because in Jesus' day, in Jerusalem, there was a temple. Today, there is no temple. And they long for the day when the temple will be rebuilt. So it is a picture. Remember, Middle Easterners, everything's a picture. So is the Bible. It is a reminder that even in the midst of our unbridled, off-the-spectrum joy, there is still a little sorrow and sadness because we don't have a temple. Isn't that amazing? So that was the last one that I participated in. And then what would typically happen is this. After the ceremony is over, it would normally take place in the courtyard of the father of the groom. Normally, we were on a boat. But normally it will be, and it was a renewal, not a first-time wedding. So it was a little different. But normally it will be in the courtyard of the groom, okay? And after the vows are exchanged under the hoopah, then they're pronounced husband and wife. The dancing begins, the instruments play, the band strikes up a song, the bride and the groom wave to all of their friends and family who have come. The whole town pours out. I mean, this is the social event of the month. The whole town comes out. They're all there in the father's courtyard. The bride and the groom are ushered by the groomsmen into what they call the bridal chamber. The door is closed. The bride and the groom are inside. The best man is on the outside, and this is the first time the bride and the groom have been alone together ever behind closed doors, where the marriage 
is consummated. If you don't know what that means, Google it. Then once the marriage is consummated, the best man will announce that the bride and groom, flushed faces and all, are about to emerge, and then everybody stops their dancing to turn and see the bride and the groom emerge from the bridal chamber, everybody curious about how did it go in there. No pressure. And then the seven days of partying begins, and you dance the hora. We did that on the boat. You know the hora where they all get into the circle, and they're Hava Nagila and all that. I mean, it is a hoot. And it is mommies and daddies and little children and grandparents and grandchildren, and they're all dancing and having a blast. Ah, I love, I love, I love Jewish weddings. Seven days of nonstop partying. How long? How many days? Seven days of nonstop partying. But, my friends, before we ever get to the wedding, here's what happens in the run-up to the big day. You have a young man probably around the age of 17 or 18, who is attracted to, and she to him, a young woman of probably 13 or 14. The parents of the girl and the parents of the boy notice the attraction. The families check each other out in order to make sure that they are both upstanding and respected families in the community. The two fathers, that of the girl and that of the boy, then meet together. And they have a conversation, and the conversation goes something like this. My daughter is attracted to your son. To which the other father will say, what a coincidence. My son is attracted to your daughter. This is wonderful. So then one of them will say, why don't we seal the deal and allow them to get what we call in our culture, though it is a very poor comparison, engaged. They call it betrothed. The difference is this. When a couple in our culture gets engaged, you can break the engagement with a text message. In that culture, when you get betrothed, it is a legally binding commitment. It is a legally binding commitment requiring to break the betrothal, requiring literally a divorce to break. So this is serious stuff. So the two dads meet together, and among their conversations they negotiate what they call the bride price because the father of the bride is going to be losing a worker in the field or in the home or whatever she does to contribute to the household because once they're married, she goes to live with the son and We'll, well, I'll tell you more about where they're going to live after that. But the father of the daughter is losing a daughter. That's what I need you to understand. All right? So he's losing a worker. 
whereas the father of the groom, as you'll see in a minute, is gaining a worker. She's going to come and move into their household. So they negotiate a bride price. And once the bride price is negotiated and paid, then they seal it by doing two things. They will first break bread together. I mentioned the other night talking about Jesus and the temptation or yesterday morning, whenever it was. When you break bread together, that means that the two families are bound together in an unbreakable commitment. Marriage in the Middle East is not the joining of two people. It is the joining of two families. And it's not ever to break. So they do that by symbol. It's all a picture. We break bread together, the sustenance of life. And then they will each father consume a cup of wine. Because wine is the fruit of the vine, and it speaks of celebration. In the meantime, the man and the, the young man and the young woman are standing outside of wherever the dads are meeting, and they're scared to death because they're afraid that something's going to go wrong in there, and they're going to come out of there and say, sorry, kids, not going to happen. But usually by this point, I mean, that is very rare, nearly unheard of at this point, the dads emerge, everything's been signed, everything's been sealed, we've broken bread, we had our wine, you're going to be married. And the bride and the groom are thrilled beyond words. They don't touch, they don't kiss, they don't embrace, that's save for the bridal chamber, but they're thrilled and then at that point, so all the family joins in at that point, right? All the siblings come in, moms come in, grandparents come in, aunts and uncles come in, and they wait with bated breath, for this is the moment for which the groom has prepared for years. He has a speech that he has memorized. And every groom quotes the same speech, word for word. It never deviates. His words to his now betrothed bride-to-be. All eyes are on him. This is his moment, and this is what he says. I will now go to my father's house. And when I go to my father's house, where there are many rooms, I am going there to build a room for you. And after I have built this room for you, I will come back and I will take you to be with me, where we will live together forever in the rooms of my father's house. Does that sound familiar to you? Did you hear that tonight? Some of you are not connecting the dots, my friends. Did you not hear Jesus' speech? 
He's about to be killed. He's about to go away. And where is he going? Back to heaven, which is his father's house. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, now believe in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may be where I am. He gave the groom speech. As of tonight, guys, we're, we're betrothed. We're engaged. And I'm going back to my father's house. Maybe I need to explain what a house is like in the Middle East. It's called an insula. Think of an insulated wire, a wire with rings of insulation around it, rubber or whatever, so you don't grab the wire and get electrocuted. A wire with insulation around it, an insula. This is what it looks like. A central courtyard, a ring of rooms where the father and the mother live. And then as they have children, the boys will add on to the house so that there's the main house and then there's one son's house and then another son's house. Well, this guy who just got betrothed hasn't built his house yet to add on to his father's house. So he leaves. And the purpose of leaving is to build the house. Added on to his father's house, where they will live together forever with the extended family around a central courtyard. Do you see the picture? Okay. So he's off and he's building this house. In the meantime, the bride is preparing for the wedding. But here's the problem. Can you guess what the problem is? You can't. Let me help you. She doesn't know how long it's going to take this guy to build the house. So she doesn't have a wedding date. She doesn't know when he's coming back. And during this time, they are not in communication with each other. Because they are saving each other for their wedding night in the bridal chamber. They don't want to risk that, anything happening. So she is waiting for her groom to finish the house. The groom is working on it feverishly, but he's got a problem. And the problem is the dads, believe me, I know, we're really picky. And we look at what our sons have built and we say to them, you're going to invite your bride to live in that? It's a dump. Get back to work. And so he gets back to work adding on to his house, trying to smooth out the walls, trying to lay a level floor, trying to do all this kind of stuff. And every day when he's done working on the house, he will go to his dad each evening and say, is it done yet? Am I ready to go get her? And every day, dad will look it over and find something else not right. A wall isn't plumb, something isn't right. So he has to get up the next day and keep working on the house. And every day he's asking his dad, is it time? Is it time? 
Is it time? And the poor bride has no idea what's going on. In the meantime, she's not the only one engaged in the town. There are other engaged girls in the town. And some of them have grooms who have finished the house. So when the groom finishes the house and the dad approves of it, the dad will say to the groom, good job, son, it's time. And once he says that, the groom gets all of his groomsmen together and they go into this big, long procession led by the best man who is blowing on a trumpet. It's called a shofar, a ram's horn. He's blowing on this trumpet and this procession goes from the father's house to the house of the bride. And all the while, as they're walking down the streets, the cobblestones, sometimes it's in their same town, sometimes they live in different towns, as the shofar is being blown, somebody in the wedding party is shouting the name of the bride. Because the brides in the town have no idea when they hear the shofar whose groom is coming. Can you imagine, ladies? And so every time you hear the shofar, you wonder, is it me? Is it me? And all of a sudden, you got to get your dress and your little suitcase and all your bridesmaids. And then you're lit because you hear the shofar first. It's piercing in its tone. And then you're listening for the name. And then finally, the name becomes audible. And you hear the name. And it's not your name. And you're devastated. And you go back and have to wait and wait. And all the while, here's this poor groom, and he's trying to get the house ready, but dad is so picky, and he is waiting for dad to say, son, good job, it's time. And one day, but you don't know when, if you're the bride, the shofar will blow, the procession will begin its march, the name will be shouted, your ear will be tuned in that direction, waiting for that name to be carried on the wisps of wind from the mouth of the bridegroom's attendant to your waiting ears. And suddenly, you will recognize it is your name. And your wedding day has come. But for all of this time, it could be three months, it could be six months, it could be a year. Every single day of your life, ladies, you wake up and your first thought is, is today the day? You look exhausted. That's the problem with you younger people. You can't keep up with us old guys. I'm just getting started. No, actually. Mike drop at 8.40, so the clock is ticking. So does that do anything for you? And then, once you hear your name, you scramble around, you get your dress ready, you get your little suitcase ready, you get all of your bridesmaids ready. Half of them are crying their eyes out because they're engaged and it wasn't their name and they're trying to show you that they're happy for you, but they're really not happy for you. Always a bridesmaid, never the bride, and they're moaning and groaning because it wasn't their groom and what's taking him so long. And I know how you brides think, I love this guy so much, we'll live in a tent. I don't care, but the dad cares. So you wait and wait and wait. 
But then you go to the wedding, and then you stand under the hoopah, and you're so excited because the bride's eyes light up, and the groom's face glows, and you share the vows. You don't smash a glass because there's still a temple. They escort them into the wedding chamber, and the party begins. How long of a party? Seven days. Isn't that awesome? Do you know what you and I are called in the New Testament? 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. Just listen. You are the bride of Christ. And on that day, for some of you it was Tuesday night in here, on that day when you said yes, I choose to follow Jesus. You got engaged. And right now, do you know what we are doing? We are waiting. We are waiting for the day you just sung about. And every morning of my life, I don't know if it's true of yours, but every single morning of my life, I wake up and I think to myself, maybe today is that day when this will happen. First, Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. Just listen. For the Lord himself, who's that? Jesus. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud shout. Do you know what that shout will be? Your name. Oh, it's going to sound kind of weird because it's going to shout all of our names all at the same time. So it's just going to be this big, loud, booming shout. With the voice of the archangel, you know who that is? The best man. The lead angel will be leading the procession. With the trumpet, the shofar call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So even if you die before this happens, you're not going to miss. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord, our groom, in the air. And so we will be with the Lord Forever. That could happen tonight. Jesus said, no one knows when I'm coming back. Only my Father knows. 
Do you know why Jesus doesn't know? Because God said, I'm not willing that anyone should perish. I want to hold out and wait in the hope that everyone will come to repentance. And every time somebody repents and says, I decide tonight to follow Jesus, he gets out the blueprints, he gets out the building materials, he gets out the tools, and he adds another room to his father's house. He added 18 of them on Tuesday night. He's waiting to add yours. Some of you who are still holding out and still checking out this whole Jesus thing, fine, that's great. Just know, once you say it's time and you stand up and you say, I have decided to follow Jesus, I don't know, you might be the one that's holding the whole thing back and he's waiting for you. I don't know who it'll be, but someday it'll be the final last person. They will stand and say, I follow Jesus. He goes to work on the house. He can build it pretty fast. And God the Father will say, Son, it's time. And our groom will return. I don't want you to miss it. So what happened Tuesday night, you can picture it in a whole lot of different ways. Remember the Bible is God's picture book, right? It is perfectly appropriate for me to frame it like this. We're at the last night of camp. This is our last chapel of our last night. I'm done in seven minutes. Jesus is looking at you. He sees you, those of you who have never received him. And he's saying to you, I want to marry you. Will you, boy or girl, man or woman, will you become my bride? That's the invitation. Only you can decide, are you going to say yes or are you going to say no? If you say yes, he goes to work on your room. He adds your name to that list that will be shouted during the procession. If you say no, he will respect that and he'll leave you alone. His heart will be broken, but he'll leave you alone. And fine you are going to miss one heck of a party. Oh, and by the way, any idea how long our party will last? Seven years. Seven years. We meet him in the air. He takes us back to his father's house. We meet in the courtyard of the father's house. You can read about it in Revelation 21. We will stand under a gigantic hoopah. God the Father himself will conduct the ceremony just like he did in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And once the ceremony is over, in heaven the party begins for seven uninterrupted years. Do you know what happens down here during those seven years? I don't want to talk about it. The Bible calls it the tribulation. 
I don't want you to miss the party. So I'm going to ask you now, on his behalf, pretend it's Jesus speaking, not me. Will you marry me? Is there anyone here tonight who needs to stand up and say yes? Just stand up and say yes. Father, this is a day for which I cannot wait. May that day come quickly. May the last person repent, the last room be built. God the Father say to God his Son what Jesus longs to hear. Son, it's time. May he appear in the clouds. May the shofar be blown. May our name be shouted. May we meet our groom in the air to go back with him to our Father's house where we will live with him and with each other forever and ever and ever. May that day come quickly. And let the party begin. One last thought before I dismiss you, if you'd look up at me. There is a thing that we do in churches today, and you're about to do it out on the ball field. We call it communion. Many of you have taken communion before. For some of you, this may be a brand new thing. You will be handed a little piece of bread, broken bread, and a little cup of juice, fruit of the vine, non-alcoholic. When you eat that bread tonight and you drink that cup, and every time you do that in the future, do you know what you're doing? Remember the bread in the cup? Remember the two dads meeting? Every time, why do we do communion regularly? We do baptism once, but communion we do regularly. Do you know why? What did Jesus say? As often as you eat this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he, what? Comes back. Do you know what we're doing? This is what you're going to do out on the field. As you eat that bread and you drink that cup, you are pledging yourself to him as his bride again. Every single time. It is a reminder that we are engaged, we are betrothed, and we are pledging our lives to him again as our groom waiting for him to come back. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, the body and blood that was broken and shed for you until he comes back. So keep that in mind tonight. As you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you're doing it in anticipation.
of your wedding day. My friends, you are now dismissed to the field, and I will see you at the wedding. I can't wait.